welcome to a special Science Week 2020 episode of The Research Field, the podcast from Chagas for everyone interested in agriculture, crops, the environment, food, horticulture, forestry and rural development research in Ireland. Presented by me, science journalist Sean Duke and produced with Katrina Boyle, Science Communication Outreach Officer at Chagask. Today's episode will feature interviews with three Chagas researchers who took part in events during the recently held Science Week. First up, we'll hear from Aoife Duff, who will tell us about her research into keeping our soils in balance and reducing the reliance on fertilizers for the growing of crops. We'll hear from Carlos Alvarez about how Irish farming can benefit from growing insects for food. And Maria Hayes, a researcher at Ashtown, will tell us about how seaweeds can help reduce emissions of greenhouse gas from our cattle, sheep and dairy cows. Let's hear now from Aoife Duff, who's working to keep our soils healthy. First of all, I've heard of this thing called the soil microbiome. So what exactly is that and what constitutes a healthy soil microbiome? So a soil microbiome is a diverse community of microbes that are made up of bacteria, archaea and fungi. Microbes have been around longer than humans. So as you can imagine, these communities of microscopic living organisms are very complex. There are millions of different species in one teaspoon of soil. And each of these species can play a role in soil functionality. Soil functions would include, say, nutrient cycling, water filtration, and of course, food production. I actually watched um, David Attenborough's new film on Netflix there, and he said that the earth has been finely tuned. And with the loss of biodiversity across the globe, we are losing that finely tuned balance. So that really struck a chord with me as it is the very same for soils. If we lose the diversity in the soil, uh, we will also lose those vital functions that soil provides. So in terms of scientists, um, what can scientists do to keep the soil microbiome in balance, if you like? And, and, and maybe you could give us a few examples. So essentially, that is what we are trying to find out. Uh, we want to investigate microbes under different environmental factors and then see how they respond. Um, but so far, we found that compaction and erosion of the soil are very important and balancing the fertility is important and avoiding over fertilizing the land because all of these things decrease the diversity of a community. However, adding, say, organic matter can help diversity of the microbial community and keeping plants and living roots in the soil for as long as possible will help as this prevents erosion and allows plant and microbes to interact. Uh, now, generally speaking, what are the benefits to farmers and to all the rest of us in society from having healthier soils? As I mentioned earlier, soil function is critical for the entire society as the environmental functions such as nutrient cycling removes greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide. Nutrient cycling, if managed in the correct way, can lead to farmers putting less fertilizer out and thereby saving money and also saving the environment. Another important function of a healthy soil is it can improve water quality through filtering the water that flows down through the soil so then the microbes in the soil can work together to remove most of the contaminants in the water and then this will lead to say your your water table and your rivers so you want to make sure that 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 water quality is good and then of course you have food production so both animal and plants are all supported by soils so if the soils are healthy food production will be more efficient and more sustainable 
how healthy do you know are the soils in Ireland generally and does it vary from region to region in Ireland? So by international standards, our soils are healthy, but they are still under threat, um, particularly from compaction, uh, unbalanced fertilisation and then the reduction of the above ground diversity. Um, so a lot of farmers grow monocultures of crops and grasses, which can lead to uh, the reduction in the below ground diversity. So one of our mantras in the Soil Environmental Research Group is above ground diversity equals below ground diversity. So if you have a low amount of species of plants around your farm, it will also be reflected in the soil. And also in some tillage soils, there's been a reduction in the overall organic matter and we need to keep replenishing that organic matter in the soil to keep it in good nick as well. And maybe, obviously, you do a lot of different research at the Soil and Environmental Research Group that you mentioned there, Chagas, but maybe give us some of the, the bigger areas of research that you're involved with. Yeah, so the group as a whole is involved in many different aspects. We are looking at reducing greenhouse gas emissions, controlling pests such as leather jackets. Uh, we're looking at antimicrobial resistance in soil. Um, we're looking at the viability of mixed species swards and understanding how microbes obviously transform nutrients. So our main aim is to understand how agricultural practice Im impacts microbial communities and soil. And in turn, we hope to relay this information to the farmers and the policymakers to ensure that farmers can get the most from their land in an environmental sustainable way. Now, my own project is uh, focused on what impact fertilizers have on grassland and what effect they have on the microbial community. Uh, so, uh, as you know, like more and more fertilizers come on the market each year, including calcium ammonium nitrate or CAN for short. Uh, you have urea and protected urea. Um, and so protected urea, for example, has inhibitors in it that can slow down some of the microbial processes via their enzymes. This will keep the fertilizer in a more stable and usable form for the plants for longer. And we want to see what impact this has on the pathways and the the overall microbial community diversity and function because if if we can get that right and if it doesn't affect the microbial community it would be very beneficial to farmers as you may not have to to um spread as much fertilizer and it'll prevent say leaching of the fertilizer down into the groundwater because it'll be in a different form of nitrogen that does not leach it would be very beneficial but we're still looking at the results so it's it's a case of getting the most from the fertilizer we use, is that it? Exactly, yeah. So because the farmers will be spreading it less and it's a slow-releasing fertilizer, it will lead to less nutrient loss and more plant uptake. And then it will save money for the farmers in the long run as they won't have to spread the fertilizer as often. And just because you're in that particular area of fertilizers, I know they're a big issue. Do you think they'll be replaced with something else ultimately, or we'll just learn to use them better? Because microbes are the main transformers of, of nutrients, we can study how they work and react to external factors from the environment. And once we understand what is driving them, we will be able to give them the exact conditions they require to transform the nutrients from unavailable forms, plant available forms, and maybe eventually you won't even have to use fertilizers, but like we aren't there yet. That is the hope in the distant future. Yeah, because that was my final question then. I mean, what ultimately, what kind of progress, say, over your career, you're starting out, could we make in soil health in Ireland in coming years and decades? Down, you know, what's the vision? There, There's lots that can be done. Um, 
new technologies have really sped up the process of understanding microbes. So when I say new technologies, I'm referring to the next generation sequencing. So in the last 10 years or so, the technology has been more refined and cheaper to run, which makes it accessible to a lot more research labs around the world. And so, so much data has been actually generated from sequencing that actually data has become a more valuable resource than oil. So yeah, I think I think microbiology is a very exciting field to be in at the moment, as we now have the tools to disentangle some of those complex relationships within the microbial community. And so we will try and use this technology maybe to find the, the sweet spot of conditions where the microbial community does what we want it to and subsequently benefit the farmers and the environment so that we can farm more sustainably. To find the, the perfect balance, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when you say sequencing, you mean DNA sequencing, I presume? Yeah, DNA sequencing. We extract the DNA from the soils and it will contain all the, D- the DNA from plants, animals and the microbes. And so we can target those microbes and see who is actually there. And then once you know who's there, then you can say, OK, is it out of balance? Do, what do we need to get it back into balance? That kind of thing. We want to understand what the the correct balance is for our microbes as we are not there yet. Uh, Once we know that, we will also study the environmental parameters involved in progressing to that balance. Uh, So hopefully we will be able to adjust the parameters to suit the community and anything we can control like say pH and nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers, we will be able to distribute the exact amount needed for the community while also taking the plants into account and then the pathways and functions of the soil we want will be carried out in the soil. That's Aoife Duff uh, doing lots of interesting things. She's a soil technologist and as I said earlier, she's based in Chagas at Johnstown Castle. Now my next guest is Carlos Alvarez based at the Food Research Centre. He told me, among other things, that we could all in the near future be eating insect burgers and insect sausages. Let's hear from him now. So what is entomophagy? How common is it in various parts of the world? So we can define entomophagy as the practice of having insects as part of our diet. And we can refer to having the whole insect, for example, a whole cricket, or we can use the same word when we're we're using uh, a fraction or a part of the insects in our diets, or if we extract some component of the insect and we incorporate that into a food formulation, that can be considered entomophagy. The first reaction that the average person will have is, oh my God, is he talking about eating insects for food? Yeah, usually when you mention that for the first time, all the people put this funny face and makes joke. It's disgusting. But this is a very European approach. Uh, I was going to say, if you look what the global population perspective, more than 2 billion people nowadays have insects on a regular basis on their diets. This is very common in Africa, Southwest uh, Asia, or even in Central and South America. And uh, just an example, in, in the Republic of Congo, Central Africa, they eat around 300 grams of uh, insects per week and per habitant, which is a huge consumption. Maybe tell me briefly about your, your own research in this area and why you got interested in it. In, in the previous year, I was working a lot on how to reduce the waste uh, and the byproducts from the food industry. So we're looking at two alternatives about how to make a better use of uh, these products coming from 
from the processing. And we find out that the insects, they, they are a good way to make use of, this, of these products. So, for example, we can use the products uh, that we don't use because they are out of date or because they are not going to be used anymore or they are not uh, fit for consumption to feed our insects. So that's one of the parts that interests me much more. But also there are many things that we don't know about the insect processing and the insect reading. And we need to provide answers to many questions. For example, we don't know how safety is to eat some of the insects. Uh, what is the nutritional quality of the products made out of insects? Or even, yeah, as you said, uh, the, the consumers might react in very different ways so we have to do consumers uh, surveys to see what they think about the insects and what will be the best approach. Uh, now you mentioned the Congo and the insect consumption there, but what are some of the other? What are some of the insect species, the common insect species that people eat around the world? Globally, I think that the last estimation was that more than one thousand different species are consumed on a regular basis. So they can be like termites. Ants, they can be crickets, grasshoppers, uh, many of them. Even you can consider that scorpions are spiders. They are also consumed, although technically they are not insects. But the variety is huge. For example, uh, I have a report saying that in China, they have like more than 300 species identified that are edible. So why do we in the Western countries, we don't eat much insects compared to elsewhere, but why do we here in the West need to start considering eating more insects or some insects? Usually it's considered that the insects are more much sustainable uh, from a point of view than other uh, sources of uh, animal protein. For example, uh, if we look to the CO2 emissions generated per kilogram of mealworm, this is much, much lower than the same equivalent for pork, milk or beef. So for also the water consumption, it's much less when you are uh, using insects for, to produce proteins. There, is, there are some reports estimating that uh, the amount of water you need to generate the same amount of protein is like 50 times less than when you use beef or pork. So another thing that we, we can consider why we have to use insects, as I mentioned before, we can use food or products that we don't want to uh, use for human food to feed the insects. So we can consider that the, the insects are like small biofactories, that they are able to convert the food that we don't use into a nutritive source of proteins and amino acids. So it's like a win-win. You are reducing the, fit the footprint of CO2 and water usage, and you are reducing the waste uh, generated. The big question I would have is how would we overcome the resistance, you know, the yuck factor that we mentioned earlier uh, to eating insects? Um, that's definitely among a lot of people here in the West. Yeah, I think when you think about uh, eating insects, you immediately think about having a whole cricket in your plate. But uh, we think that a better approach is just to extract from the insects the components that you need, the essential proteins and amino acids, lipids or vitamins or minerals, and incorporate that into products that are more familiar with European consumers. For example, we can elaborate sausages, burgers or snacks, protein bars with these proteins. The jack factor can be reduced a lot. You are consuming insect proteins, but in a format that is much more familiar and friendly to the consumers. Okay, an insect burger or insect sausage. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea. So 
you are eating something you already know, but the ingredients will be different. So you can incorporate uh, insect proteins, for example, into a burger, and you can have the same texture, the same palatability. So it will be more acceptable for the consumers. Tell me what your best uh, idea is on how this area is going to develop in Ireland uh, and around the world in coming years. I think that this will mean a diversification of our current production system. So uh, we can expand our markets, we can expand our exports. And also this is a market that is increasing a lot at global scale. So we need to take advantage of the of the research we're doing. So we can use this knowledge in Ireland. So we will have the knowledge and the expertise required to rear the insects efficiently. And then we will have the capability of processing them in a way that results attractive to the consumers. So we can open new business opportunities. What would be the benefits for Ireland if we decide as a country to start trying to produce more insects as food for ourselves, for maybe for export, and also for uh, our animals? I think that can be like a buffer for the economy. If the beef industry is going very well, you can focus on that. But then if there is some fluctuations in the market, you can use insects just to overcome some of the difficulties in the future. At the moment in Europe, the insect production is very limited because the legislation is not clear at the moment. Only few countries in Europe allow the use of insects. It's very, it's very, very limited to three different species. But uh, it's planned that in the next few months, a new legislation will be launched. And under this legislation, the, the insect production will be allowed in the whole European Union. So this market will expand enormously. So we will have an opportunity there. And on a global scale, as I mentioned before, already 2 billion people are using insects in a regular basis. So there is a huge market there for, and it's a big opportunity for exports and making business in, in other countries. Wonderful. Well, thanks very much for telling us about that, Carlos. It sounds like a really promising area. That's Carlos Alvarez. He's at the Food Research Centre in Ashtown telling us about insects and how we could possibly use them in farming a little bit more. Seaweeds, as we all know, grow in abundance around Ireland's shores. They contain many ingredients that are good for our health and when fed to livestock, they can reduce emissions of methane, a significant greenhouse gas. In our final interview today, let's hear about seaweed and its potential from Maria Hayes. Can you tell me about the potential that we have here in Ireland to harness seaweed as food? Sure, Sean. Uh, well, as you know, Ireland, we're an island and we're blessed with a very clean coastline that's ideal for seaweed harvesting and aquaculture of seaweeds. So aquaculture is basically growing seaweeds on, on rope systems um, so you have a sustainable supply. And in Ireland, we have approximately 300 or more different seaweed species um, that occur largely on the west coast, but they're also on the east and, and south coast of Ireland. Um, we have different red, brown and green algae. And um, if they're harvested at different times of the year, they can contain individually very high protein contents. They can contain valuable carbohydrates. Um, they can contain fiber. Um, they can be generated into foods with prebiotic or good gut health potential. Um, and there's a myriad, really, of, of different applications of the seaweeds. So this is wonderful. We're, we're lucky then in Ireland to have this resource all around us. Yes, we're very lucky. Um, we're, we're blessed, really, um, because we're an island and because, especially on the West Coast, the waters are so clean 
um, you know, that they're ideal for seaweed um, production and harvesting. Um, already in Ireland, there are a number of companies that harvest seaweed uh, commercially and they do so for feed purposes. But a growing interest is there in relation to food and seaweeds for food. Tell me now about the nutrients and the health benefits that we can gain, if you like, from eating seaweeds. Okay, well, um, seaweeds, they're not all the same. So as I mentioned already, we have red seaweeds, brown seaweeds and green seaweeds. And um, each of them is rich in different nutrients. Okay, but largely um, all seaweeds can be very rich in different vitamins, um, especially the B vitamins. And a lot of seaweeds are also rich in protein. So specifically the red and the and the green seaweeds um, have very high protein content compared to other protein sources. So, for example, um, there is a seaweed known as a dulse. It's a red seaweed and its scientific name is Palmyra palmata. And it ha- you probably have eaten it already, um, but this seaweed can contain uh, up on 27% protein of its dry weight. And other seaweeds such as nori, which you find in the, the wrapping for sushi rolls, um, that actually can contain as much as 47% uh, protein of its dry weight. So, you know, it's really, they're really quite often an excellent source of protein. They're also an excellent source. The brown seaweeds are an excellent source of carbohydrates. And and these carbohydrates um, have usually prebiotic potential. So they have good gut um, good gut bacteria stimulating activities if they're eaten. Um, seaweeds are also rich in iodine. So um, humans, the average adult is advised to consume about 150 um, micrograms of iodine per day. And a lot of seaweeds such as kombu or nori, they they actually would have excess of this amount of iodine. Um, And they're an excellent source of iodine if you're deficient in iodine. So maybe tell me about how you go about extracting the protein from the seaweed. Yeah, so um, here in in Ashtown, we've been, and in in Chagas Moor Park as well, in conjunction with our partner, our sister institute in Moor Park, uh, we have a number of projects looking at um, novel protein sources, and seaweeds are one of those protein sources. So, because of the environment in which seaweeds are found, um, they have developed and evolved to have a very strong extracellular structure known as the cell wall. Okay, And that protects the seaweed from the environmental conditions in the sea and from dehydration and from, from the high soil content of seawater, for example. And because of this, the protein is difficult to access. But in, in Chagask, we are developing methods to access this protein um, and the different methods that we use include things like um, breaking down that cell wall with the different enzymes that ha- that can break down carbohydrates, but also release proteins. And that's known as hydrolysis. Um, there are other methods where you can apply high pressure to the cell wall of the seaweed, and that will help to put pressure on the wall and cause it to burst and release the, the internal content, which is where the protein is found. And you can also use fermentation and other methods as well, you know, like sonication, which is basically the application of of, of sonar, I suppose. And um, there's also microwave assisted extraction of protein, which is basically where you microwave the seaweeds and uh, that can cause the cell wall to um, 
break down and hopefully release the protein. So if you just ate if you just ate the seaweed without doing any of that, would you get the protein, I wonder? Yeah, well, um, the bioavailability or how available it is in the body is a question that we, you know, it's it's been addressed currently, but it hasn't really been answered fully. Um, but yeah, yeah, some seaweeds, the, the protein would be bioavailable. Um, in other instances, for example, with the brown seaweeds, you have what are known as anti-nutritional factors um, that bind to the protein and therefore they limit what is bioavailable or what can be taken up by the body, the human body. Anti-nutritionals such as fluorotannins themselves, they have benefits also like they have, they're considered as phenolics and they have different uh, health beneficial activities. You know, so a really we are looking at extracting the protein in a sequential um, sort of biorefinery manner where we extract the protein followed by different other beneficial extracts. Um, so that's really the focus of our work here in Chagisk. Now, tell me about these bioactives that I believe are also in seaweeds. Uh, what, what are they and, uh, you know, how can they be used to prevent disease or for other purposes? Okay, so uh, basically bioactives are compounds that are found in, in lots of different plants. For example, they can be found in fruit and vegetables as well. They range in their structure from things like bioactive peptides, which are derived from proteins, to fluorotannins, which I've mentioned already, which are phenolics, to alkaloids and saponins. So each bioactive can be applied in different manners to provide a health benefit to the consumer. Um, so, for example, if we take fluorotannins, uh, they are phenolics and uh, they can basically inhibit enzymes in the body that can cause high blood pressure. So they can have antihypertensive effects. Um, and they can also, interestingly enough, if used in animal feeds, we're looking at them as a source of anti-methane. They're considered an anti-methane um, production ingredient. So they can inhibit enzymes in the rumen of animals such as cattle, sheep and dairy cows um, that produce methane. And they can also ensure that there isn't any, any energy waste when the animal is growing. So that's just some examples of, of fluorotannins as bioactives. I mentioned bioactive peptides. So these are sequences of amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein and um, between two and 30 in length. And these peptides, once they're cut from the parent protein, they can cause positive health benefits to the consumer. So they can, again, inhibit enzymes that are responsible for control of blood pressure. They can also inhibit enzymes that are involved in the development of type 2 diabetes. So they can control uh, glucose release in the body and they're thought to be have a preventive effect in the development of type 2 diabetes. And they can also uh, prevent things like inflammation by, again, inhibiting enzymes that your common drugs such as aspirin and ibuprofen inhibit. And these enzymes are called cyclooxygenase enzymes. So they have a role to play in inflammation. And if you can inhibit these enzymes, you can potentially inhibit inflammation. Wow. It, by, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons then to want to eat seaweed, isn't there? Gosh, it sounds like a, a real superfood. Obviously, there is caveats with seaweed consumption as well. You know, they they absorb a lot of of things. So, you know, they have to be grown in very clean waters. Um or they can take up things like heavy metals. So you have to assess the, the content of heavy metals in the seaweed. But overall, they are generally very good for your health. 
So is there a bit of a boom happening in terms of seaweed harvesting and companies that are interested in getting involved in this? Yes, um, definitely in Ireland. I, I've been working on seaweed now for the last, I'd say, 12 years in Chagask. And I have seen the number of companies working in this area grow uh, substantially. Uh, so, you know, they range from uh, small, medium enterprises that are just starting out to big companies that have a very well developed um, products that they've developed for application in animal feed or indeed in human foods uh, from seaweeds. Now, finally, just tell me about your project, Sea Solutions, I think it's called. Uh, you're involved in that. And what's what's the aim of it? Yeah, definitely. Um, Sean, Sea Solutions is a very exciting project. We've uh, uh, The aim of the project really is to uh, use seaweeds to help um, reduce and inhibit methane production from a lot of our very important agricultural cows here in Ireland. Um, so there are agricultural animals, I should say. So our dairy cows, our cattle and our sheep, which is, you know, they're a huge export markets for Ireland. And they're, it's very important that this area of agriculture continues, you know. But with that, they produce methane emissions and we have to counteract that. So the Sea Solutions Project is all about developing solutions to help reduce the amount of methane produced from cattle, sheep and dairy cows. And how, how long are you into that now? How long has it been going on? So so this project, it, start, it just started this year. So uh, the, the first meeting of the, the consortia. So by the consortia, I mean our, our research partners who are based in Scandinavia, Germany, uh, the UK, Canada um, and yeah, Northern Ireland as well. So um, we met first and we got funding in March and we've been working steadily on this project since then. So it's a three year project. It runs until 2023. And the aim of it, as I said, is really to identify bioactive compounds from seaweeds that can help to reduce methane emissions and to demonstrate that anti-methane effect by using animal trials in cattle, sheep and dairy cows. Thanks a lot, Maria. No problem, Sean. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this special Science Week episode. If you'd like to support the show, then please rate and review it on the iTunes podcast platform. The podcast is also available on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google, Overcast, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. I'd like to wish you all good health until we meet again. And until then, goodbye from all of us here at The Research Field.